Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberate.it using the discount code PODCAST. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberate. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 401 Access Denied. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Joseph Carson from Thycotic, and joined with me today is, of course, Mike G. Uh, so, Mike, do you want to give your, yourself yep. a bit of an introduction? Yep, Mike Rowan, uh, sometimes called G. So if you hear <laughs> that, that's that's what that is. Uh, CISO and uh, VP of Engineering here at Cyberry. Um, super excited to talk today. And we are well, once again uh, joined by Josh Lospinoza from Shift5. Uh, Josh, why don't you give a quick intro? Sure. Yeah. Josh Lospinoza, founder, CEO of uh, Shift5 um, OT cybersecurity company. Cool. Awesome. And uh, today's going to be an interesting topic. We're going to take a bit of a segue from the normal kind of, you know, looking at different was the technologies and threats and trends. And we're going to get into one of the things. So one thing that I do often is when I go to different events, we kind of tend to go around all of the booths and we take a look at all of the trends and what's happening and what's new and what's interesting. And uh, there's a game we can tend to, tend to play, which is buzzword bingo. It's a kind of, you get your, your things that's in the list, which is, you know, this looks like it's real. This looks like it's, you know, interesting, needs further research. And it's, then the other thing is really what you're determining is what's really bullshit and FUD. And that's ultimately what we kind of look into. And there's a lot, I mean, one thing is the cybersecurity industry is really good at doing is creating a lot of new buzzwords. We like to do, you know, new trends, come up with new ideas, new basically labels for everything. And ultimately, you know, what we're going to do in today's show is really kind of pull some of those apart, is really kind of look into the reality of what really it is and what does it mean? What is the reality check of a lot of these buzzwords that you see in the industry, whether it being walking around and booths, whether it being the messages you get in email or things you attend in webinars and so forth, or the collateral and kind of messaging that you get in a lot of products. So you're going to kind of pull back and look through and really check and some of those things. So, um, Josh, kind of going to yourself, what's what's the latest buzzwords you've heard in the industry? What's what's the terms that has everyone excited, or what, what's the silver bullet of security? What's going to save us all? Yeah, I mean, I think the big three villains in this uh, discussion, which we'll definitely cover uh, in this episode, is uh, ML, AI, and quantum. Um, <laughs> and what's so dangerous about these terms is that there's there's always a kernel of truth to mm-hmm. sort of like what these things are and how they're going to have pretty profound ramifications on cybersecurity. Um, and, you know, frankly, like, potentially human lives in general uh, beyond cybersecurity. Um, but as ever, it's all, it's the way that these things get applied and sort of, you know, universally hyped up around essentially everything. Um, uh, you know, I guess like blockchain was there a couple of years ago and we've sort of like gotten off of that sugar high and we're realizing that like, okay, maybe there are some contexts where decentralized trust could be really important, but it's not going to solve everything, right? So I think right. this is just a very- Wait, hold on a second. Blockchain's not going to solve everything? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm so, You heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> 
it's not going to save humanity, that's for sure. Yeah, right. I mean, I think quantum's an, an interesting one to start with, just because I think back all the way to when I was first getting started in my career and quantum computers. And um, I mean, I was starting in 96, 97. I remember, you know, SSL starts, you know, started coming out. I don't remember exactly how old, but around that same time frame. Um, and how quantum was going to change everything, how encryption wasn't going to matter once quantum computers were a real thing and, and so on and so forth. And I feel like nothing has changed in 30 years. Uh, I feel like quantum, we've, we've made about as much, like it's always just out of reach. It's always just there. And I'm curious what your guys' opinions are on, on that. Yeah, I mean, maybe... I, I don't know, like, if the, the, the listeners, if they um, are, like, read on to what quantum computer, I mean, maybe it would be a good thing to just go through a third. Oh, it's just second. something you put in front of anything to imply That's big, right. fast, new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Super, super good. Yeah. <laughs> it just means more better. Uh, more better. <laughs> Um, but I, I could give it a shot and then maybe we could, you know, go around. I think that'd be maybe a good, good basis because it, it really is, if you don't understand like <laughs> at least the, the, the like, um, high level of how quantum computers differ from classical computers, it's basically impossible to, to determine what is like real, uh, observations right. about where cybersecurity is going versus like total, total, um, uh, misdirection. So, um, so, you know, basically like, Traditional computers, classic computers, operate with transistors that exist in basically states of zero and one, and they're deterministic, right? And everything that we've built modern technology on depends on these sort of states of zero and ones, and everything is built up from that. Um, when you get down into the, like, the teeny tiny world of nanometers, um, things get really weird. <laughs> and like, like what makes intuitive sense to us about how objects behave in, 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 in the universe completely breaks down. Like we, we, we don't really have good intuition. There's a famous physicist, Richard Feynman, who says like anybody who says that they understand quantum mechanics, like have an intuition for it is totally bullshitting because like uh, it doesn't make any sense. Like, so right. like essentially you've got um, things that can exist in a probability of states um, that they're not zero and one. They're sort of like tending towards one or the other. And so um, some crazy mathematicians were like, hey, what if we make a computer out of these things that exist sort of in this superposition of zeros and ones. So they call, instead of calling them bits, which is, um, uh, you know, the zero and one of classical computers, mm -hmm. um, they exist in this superposition state and then we call these qubits, right? So for right now, um, so I mean, maybe we could, you know, stop there and sort of like maybe see if, if that explanation makes sense because, you know, <laughs> insofar as it does. Um, I mean, I think it's going to make sense to the people, at least it makes sense to me because I've been, following it for a while. And I think mm -hmm. what was interesting back in the nineties, one of the other comparisons was in the biological world where you can use bacteria and other right. sort of biocomputers awesome. to, yeah. to do very similar things of trying to test everything at once, uh, sort of just due to probability, right. you're going to get the answer. Um, right. I haven't, at least biocomputing hasn't, uh, continued the hype that quantum has, but yeah, mm -hmm. I mean the, the multi-state, the, the idea, I think the, the, I think the key to the whole quantum is that you're able, the, the idea is that you're able to process things sort of in parallel in this, because there's these, everything's right. in multiple states. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, you can sort of do things massively parallel or, or whatever. It's sort of hard to, if you don't know the physics, it's hard to totally. sort of... Correct. And it was getting into the qubits. It, it's really getting down to is the difference between that and binary and, and bits that we've traditionally known is that 
um, where a, 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 bind, a bit can be either on or off as, as Josh is mentioning. In a qubit world, it can be actually you know, up to four different states at any one time. And therefore, basically the computational power of that is significant to what our traditional computers have the capability of doing. Uh, but it really gets into is that the taking advantage of them is actually, is the difficult part is creating algorithms that can actually be processed in a quantum kind of uh, uh, computing world. And that's the challenge. And one of the things I've seen is that the likes of, you know, you've got these hybrid ones. You've got, of course, it's the uh, the D-Wave and E-Waves uh, coming uh, from, I think it was, it was Google and uh, uh, NASA. And then, of course, you've got uh, IBM's version of the, the Quantum One. Um, and all of these, what really they're looking for is that they're, they're hybrids at the moment, um, which is really kind of where they're at. They're not into true you know, quantum uh, capabilities. But the kind of when you think about it is that the idea is they're looking at, you can put in all moving objects in space, all planets, asteroids, comets, and put it into these uh, algorithms. And what a quantum computer could potentially do is tell you when those comets and asteroids could actually collide with the Earth. So ultimately, that's the, the power that they have the capability of doing. But we're, you know, getting to getting that close to capability. Um, of course, our concern in the security world has always been that you take that same type of computational power and you apply it to prime numbers. And that actually then weakens the security of traditional uh, encryption today. And that's the, 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 the concern. Um, so there is these hybrids that do exist, and I believe China still has, you know, um, one of the kind of the the, the computing, the, the one that has the most qubits uh, capabilities. But I did learn a lot. It's not about how many qubits you have; it's actually the quality of the um, the qubit itself, and that makes a big big difference. Um, so ultimately, the concern here is that you know, eventually, if someone does get the capability of taking a quantum computer computer and targeting against prime numbers and traditional encryption, anything that we've encrypted historically in the past is publicly available or available you know, to, to that person that they could break the encryption. So that's the, right. the major concern from a quantum perspective. Um, are we there yet? You know, uh, I don't know. I just kind of get from what I can kind of publicly available and what I hear. But um, my understanding is that you know, to getting to true quantum is, is still a long way to go. Yeah, that's that's my my understanding as well. And I think the the one of the things to understand about um, where quantum computing and regular computing, um, at least from a traditional computer science mm -hmm. perspective, is the notion of um, NP uh, problem. You know, NP complete NP problems that are difficult to um, for a computer to solve, but very very fast to prove. Um, so if you have the solution, you can verify that that is the solution in right. po polynomial time, very very fast. But actually coming up with the solution takes a long time. And that's what like is at the heart of encryption is this ability. It's, it's really, really hard to break the, the code. But once you have the answers, it's very, very fast to, to compute the solution. Um, and so quantum basically is looking at taking this whole class of problems and turning them from very, very hard into like very, very easy, like anything else, like sorting uh, a bucket of, of, um, of strings, which is polynomial, um, being able to do that with non-polynomial problems. Um, and that's, I think, at the heart, and that's what the heart of encryption is. It's these functions that are, you know, hard in one direction, but easy in another. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be able to 
do banking online in any type of real time. Right. Um, there was an interesting, you know, there was an interesting uh, series recently on the same topic, which was uh, devs. I don't know if you got to watch the the series uh, devs, which was interesting. And it got to the point where it was looking at using similar you know, compute, computational power. And if you took all the data that, that we have around us about how everything happened, that it could actually want us, it could look into the future and also uh, look into the past as well mm-hmm. if you were able to take all the objects. Uh, but again, you know, this, um, I did listen to an interesting audiobook recently on a similar subject, which was the science of science fiction, uh, which is also a really interesting topic as well. It's about all the things we see in the movies and the science fiction side of things and really looking at the science of that. Um, and really kind of think from quantum side of things is that we do know the aspects of it and we do know the possibilities, but getting there, getting to really utilizing it for its value that it can provide is is probably, you know, some, some years away, I believe. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's also really important to specify like which kinds of encryption are subject to like getting totally broken apart by, by quantum. And that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys have basically illuminated it, but just to be really explicit about it, um, you know, there's sort of two broad classes of encryption, um, at least as far as like uh, this conversation is concerned, so you know, symmetric and, and asymmetric. So um, uh, things like uh, doing a banking transaction online require uh, what we call, you know, asymmetric or public key cryptography, where there's a public key, I'm going to encrypt some data using that key. And the only person who can decrypt it is the holder of the private key that corresponds to that public key, right? So much of like what we do in modern society depends on the, this, the, the security of that crypto system. And um, Joe, as you mentioned, the, the math that uh, underpins Mm-hmm. the security of that crypto system right now um, can be broken by quantum algorithms, right? So, right. Um, you know, if you're talking about um, uh, elliptic curve um, uh, or integer factorization, these are problems that are like a quantum computer can solve them very quickly and things will break. Um, if we get quantum computers, the way that uh, things are set up, people that are using these these very, you know, up to now secure uh, algorithms are going to be in deep trouble, right? Um the world's not falling. Uh, the sky's not falling. Like I'm an optimist about this. There are um, quantum resistant quantum resistant algorithms that are like in active development right now. So um, there's things that are, I don't understand these. So like um, you know, but I know that they exist. Uh, there's uh, like lattice based cryptography. There's like um, hash based cryptography and like uh, code based yeah. cryptography. And all of these things um, basically the the Shor's algorithm, which is the algorithm that uh, that breaks all of the current uh, public key crypto systems doesn't work against these these new uh, ways of doing encryption. So I'm hopeful um, that like we're, you know, the, the, the quantum computers aren't going to destroy the world. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of active discussion about when do we start migrating to these quantum resistant um, uh, uh, things. And, you know, We'll see. It could be decades before we see uh, practical, practical quantum computers. You're almost certainly not going to see one on your cell phone. Uh, I think. Right. I mean, you have to, like <laughs> to get qubits, you have to have like actual absolute zero temperatures. You know, like it's it's just pretty insane. Um, Walking and, around with a refrigerator. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so probably not going to happen. Um, but uh, anyway, I, th- I thought that would be helpful. And, and then you know. Um, uh, 
symmetric key algorithms like AES are already quantum resistant. So they, they don't, um, you you don't really have to worry there. So I thought that would just be sort of another to, to our point of like, people get really hyped up about quantum computers, like destroying encryption. It's, it's always more nuanced than that. Right. Correct. I I suspect. Yeah. So go on, Joe. Yeah, it's a specific type of encryption that's exposed. Right. Um, if you, as long as you have one of the, let's say, um, the factors, um, you can actually reverse it. Typically, it's basically created from two prime numbers and very large prime numbers. Mm-hmm. And that's the concern is if you've got a public key, if you've got some references, then you can actually map it back to a private key. But as you mentioned with symmetric, um, you know, there is no public key, you know, piece of it. Um, it's all about making sure that you exchange the key in a secure manner, and that's not exposed uh, to, right, to right. quantum. Um, yeah, and, and given ciphertext, a quantum computer can't just magically create plain text out of that. Um, right, correct. And then it's again, you know, you get into one directional hashing mechanisms, especially what things like as passwords are, are kept in. Um, is also, you know, depending on, on how well you assault it and, and how much can I let's say uh, 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 mathematical complexity you put into it, then those are also resistant uh, to to attacks as well. Right. I mean, I think it's kind of clear based on human history when we'll see those resistant algorithms really ma- making it into mainstream, which is about five years after the first quantum that's computer right. breaks right. something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it also highlights, oh, sorry, I was going to say this also highlights like a really important um, feature of crypto systems, um, which is, in my opinion, one of the reasons that PGP hasn't really taken off among like the security community, mm-hmm. which is um, perfect forward secrecy. Like this is a really important, um, aspect of modern um, uh, cryptographic systems, and uh, you know that, that may be uh, a little bit of a tangent, but maybe ha- helpful to, to kind of uh, dive into a bit because um, it gets to the point that you're getting to. So, so perfect forward secrecy is this idea that um, if a uh, if an attacker is able to compromise the key material for like uh, one communication, mm-hmm. um, it won't compromise all the communications between those two those two parties. Right. So if, you, if you're able to recover the session, uh, the key for a session, it doesn't tell you anything about the other uh, sessions. Um, and so um, uh, Diffie-Hellman is, is, a, is an algorithm that, that gives you perfect forward secrecy because of uh, this sort of session key concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and this just underlines like why it's so important to have this kind of security built in so that if you update the, you know, the security protocols, you have session keys rather than some sort of global global um, uh, encryption key. So, so right. PGP, by, you know, uh, in contrast, doesn't have perfect forward secrecy. And this is one of like the major objections in the security community. It's like why, uh, why we don't use it. It wasn't, wasn't PGP, the original kind of algorithm using, it was based on the, the randomness of the mouse movement that created the key. I think yeah, that right. was the original, right. um, how, how the key was originally created was how you move the mouse around. Right. And that's how it would actually, um, yeah. the yeah. mathematical computation was done. Yeah, I think basically, um, you know, computers, because as you mentioned, because they're deterministic, um, it's actually surprisingly difficult to get randomness out of computers. Right. Um, exactly. And so there's this there's this funny uh, example. I think it's Cloudflare has like these lava lamps set up that they actually derive keying material from. Um, I mean, there's a number. Yeah, there's basically hardware devices. That's the right. only way you can really get true random is having 
hardware right. devices that are measuring various like things. Radiation and, from space and like all sorts <laughs> right. of right. temperature, LEDs. humidity. Yeah. And, right, exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. That gets us into that quasi-prime side of things we were talking about using using music <laughs> right. as, as a right. source of, of randomness. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly when I play music, it's definitely random. Uh, <laughs> So, so getting into, so I think quantum, um, definitely, if we, if we can look at it from a buzzword, it, it's definitely something that is real, um, but the true value of it is going to be likely going to be years away. And, you know, if somebody does get access to a quantum computer, they're probably the last thing they're going to be wanting to do is break encryption. They're going to be wanting to use it, I'm hoping, uh, for the benefit of, of other things that are more valuable to society. I mean, um, I don't know. So, I think it has to do with the state act. It, my guess is it's a state actor that's going to get it first, and then they're going to, they're probably going to use it in both positive and negative ways to benefit. I think that's probably right. Like all technology. <laughs> right. All technology is used in the same. So, yeah. right. so. Um, so, so for the audience, yeah, it, it is something, but, you know, will you have it in five years, you know, in your pocket? Definitely not. It'll be a very cold device. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, although you can mess with these things. Um, so there are like pseudo quantum computers now to like, we're going to add all kinds of like, uh, fancy, uh, fancy prefixes to things. Um, so you can actually like download, um, environments where it, there's like a virtual machine that pretends mm -hmm. it's a quantum computer and you can use languages, I think it's like Q sharp or there's some like other, you know, uh, where, where basically you can program um, against a quantum computer and like it'll simulate qubits essentially. So if, you, if you're interested in these sorts of things, even though you're not going to get the performance of a quantum computer, you can at least get your brain wrapped around like how these things work. Yeah. And if you are interested in actually learning about it, one one thing I remember when I was doing kind of four or five years ago, getting into, because I was in Estonia, they use a lot of, um, you know, was it uh, innovation areas? And there's a lot of, you know, discussions into different technologies. And one thing I was working on again was, was from back then was blockchain and quantum. And uh, there was Ooh, look a at that guy, blockchain quantum. Yeah, blockchain <laughs> quantum. And there was a guy, if you, you know, there's a guy in Australia so just look up Australian guy, you know, qubits. Um, and there's a lot of videos of him explaining. So if you're interested in actually, you know, spending some time on YouTube listening to qubits and, and how it works, um, there's an Australian professor that uh, really explains it uh, in a very kind of professor-like uh, manner, so as they all do. So Nick's buzzword, I think, uh, um, that uh, Josh had mentioned as well, is around uh, the AI. And I'm always, I, I prefer to call it kind of AI, but this gets into the big topic of what does what does the A really mean, <laughs> and when we talk about it, and what does the I mean? I know the I is the, the I is F. If the <laughs> so this is the big one, and, and I can't tell you, you know, when I go to events and I go listen to webinars and, and different vendors, the big buzzword is around how they're using artificial intelligence to make organizations and people and society safe. And that is this new kind of silver bullet that will actually solve all problems. Um, for me, can I, I'm always looking at the realist side of things. So I'm just interested, Josh, from your your view on, on what's your thoughts around AI itself. Yeah, I mean, I think the critical question, you know, it was sort of tongue in cheek before, but like, what is intelligence? Is like, I think a really important uh, question, and <laughs> because. To, to say what artificial intelligence is, you can't really define that without understanding like what, mm -hmm. what you really mean by intelligence. And so, you know, where I, where I think it becomes shorthand 
right? Where the, where the term's actually used outside of like a scientific context is like to get a machine uh, to do tasks that would be normally required by a human being, right? And that's an imperfect sort of shorthand, but I think that's where mo- what most people um, mm-hmm. uh, mean when they say AI, right? So I think maybe starting there, but like, you know, intelligence itself is like, it's a non-trivial concept. Like what is, what is, um, you know, what is intelligence? Do plants have intelligence? Do bacteria have intelligence? I would think we would all say that people and monkeys and whales probably have intelligence, but where do you sort of like draw the line on that is, is I think, you know, a pretty important question to answer. I mean, I think I think about it in terms of like the, the, I can't remember what the quote, the exact quote, but the, you know, um, suitably, uh, like, technology looks like magic. Like at some point, suitably complex technology just is magic. You, they're in, in, And I think when I think about AI, that's where I start to go is the complexity of the system is approaching to the point where its decision-making is so complex that I can't really explain it. It's because it's, there's so many nuances there. It's taking in so many things. Like I can't explain how I make a decision. Like I right. You know what I mean? And to me, that's, that's magic that's happening in my brain. Mm-hmm. AI sort of, it's, it's when computers get to that point where you're no longer really able to fully communicate how the, that decision is. And, and that's how I sort of, where I draw that line is um, in artificial intelligence. Yeah. So, so for me, it's so, so based on you know, Josh and, and, and Mike, uh, your kind of descriptions, it reminds me of uh, something I did 20 years ago that I had a problem with a server that kept, uh, let's say, uh, running out of memory and the application was crashing. So I created a little thing that we were probably, you know, based on our terminology, we could call it artificial intelligence. I taped the pen to the top of a remote control car and actually scheduled it in order to actually drive into the button on the computer to reset it <laughs> periodically. <laughs> so I didn't have to. Um, so, you know, is that, you know, replacing me from going and pushing the button myself to actually doing it in an automated way? Um, so for me, I, that's where we kind of would draw the line is that, you know, I think doing things is that there's certain tasks that humans do that just physically cannot be replicated by a computer, um, by, you know, by the traditional sense. And for me, what I've always been saying is that, and that's why I struggle with the term artificial intelligence, because everything we do, it's all about automating human tasks. And I don't think automating human tasks is truly, you know, the same as artificial intelligence. And that's the mis- that's a misunderstanding is, is that we're sometimes confusing automating human tasks mm-hmm. or artificial intelligence. And when you look at the reality, when I go to a lot of the vendors who talk about AI, and I look under the cover, what they're doing is they're automating somebody looking at a log file. They're automating somebody going and analyzing mass amount of data and then trying to come to conclusion. For me, that's just automation. That's, so for me, it's, a, it's automated intelligence, not so much artificial. Um, it's just taking tasks that a human would do that computers can replicate. It might, to your point, be more complicated and look like magic um, because some of those algorithms do get very, very complex. And so I can remember, I, I actually participated in a summit last year. It's called the Talent, uh, Talent Digital Summit. And last year's event was on government's policies around artificial intelligence. And we got into a big discussion um, around, you know, the, what, was it, what did it truly mean? 
And ultimately, we get into, and I liked IBM's term of the A was they call it augmented. Um, when you get into the, uh, let's say, the, the uh, doctorate side of things or the educational, you know, uh, and the, the professors, they call it artifact intelligence. It's all about mm-hmm. artifact collection and understanding it by the outcomes. Um, and for me, I tend to call it automation um, to truly kind of d- differentiate between what true, the, the one thing I have seen that gets closer to it is when they're looking at, um, let's say, automatically translating text into other languages, when you're talking about natural language processing, when you're looking at being able to listen to me speak and you know not knowing what's coming and then be able to properly translate that correctly into another language. And my definition is that when I really get to see true artificial intelligence is when um, a program that can only, that's only been trained to, let's say, do natural uh, language processing on English and actually can then learn German and then automatically translate German without human intervention. That's kind of what I think about, you know, some, something that is truly getting closer is what they can truly learn themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think the the learning aspect or the the self modification aspect mm-hmm. is also an important part. But you know, going back to the sort of on the AI side, I think about um, like one of the problems uh, Josh and I uh, at Red Owl were, were facing was like, how do you identify someone who might be leaving an organization? And right, so because that's from a security mm-hmm. perspective, people who are leaving it that they're somebody you want to watch. They're going to, for they're going to take a lot of the data with them. Right, they're going to, <laughs> so, right. So, or, right, right, they're, or they're going to, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're disgruntled and they're going to delete everything, you know, whatever it is. So how do you identify someone who's unhappy and potentially going to leave? And me as a manager, I can sort of get a feel for people mm-hmm. who are sort of disengaging and how to, you know, and and, but how do you get a computer to look at, whatever behavior they can actually observe, whatever behavior computers can observe about the people within the system mm-hmm. and get it to identify some someone it thinks might be ready to leave. And I think, you know, what we worked on and what was interesting was, I remember sitting down with the mathematicians and we went through all these things and like we needed to be able to check that our math was right and how do you even do that? And that's where I started feeling like, okay, now we're getting into the real realm of artificial mm-hmm. intelligence because like we have these models, we, how do we actually know that they're right? The only way to know they're right is to actually use them on, on old data sets where we know what the answers were. We, you know, and I remember saying with the mathematicians and you know, I wrote my version of the algorithm and, and then they would actually have to hand compute things uh, in order for us to make mm-hmm. sure that my math was right and their math was right. And 50% of the time I was wrong. 50% of the time they made a mistake somewhere in their Excel spreadsheet. It was a nightmare. Um, and 25% of the time you were both wrong, but thought you were right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, right. All right. Who knows how many times we both came up with the same answer, but it was the wrong answer. Right. That's a great point. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, probably 50% of the time. Um, but yeah, so, but to me, that's where artificial, that's where we were starting into artificial intelligence, where that model was so complex and there were so many things going on that, it was, it was, it was, it was something that I as a human do and I do it intuitively and I couldn't quite explain exactly how I do it to a computer. It's not just a bunch of if statements. It's 
a buildup of all of these different things and then putting it into a model. And I think that's where we start getting closer and closer to real artificial okay. intelligence and machine learning and, and actually looking and, you know, having the computer observe things, training itself, making changes to its own algorithms to, right. to, to, and, and so on and so forth. And then the, you get to the point where the machine is trans sort of, transmuted itself so many times that the original programmer has no idea what's going on in there. And I think right. that's, you know, that's basically yep. YouTube and Facebook, like in terms of their rec recommendation engines, nobody really knows why this video is being recommended to me. And I think that when it comes to cybersecurity and looking at logs, I think those concepts, those are buzzwords that are used in the cybersecurity mm -hmm. space to do what you're talking about, Joe, which is like, yeah, we've automated the looking at these logs. But the fact of the matter is I could actually explain if by if what that computer yep. is doing, looking at those logs yep. and flagging things. And it really is point. just the algorithm is not self-learning. The, the right. code itself is, is still the original algorithm code that was actually done by the developer. Exactly. Exactly. And, exactly. And the way I, I mean, like the way I think what we're talking about is like the idea of cognition, right? It's like yeah. it's like having this base of knowledge and then experiencing and sensing things and then interpreting that into new knowledge, right? That right. becomes part of, and and so like you know, I think of like kids, right? And and mm -hmm. and, and you know, like. This is if you're if you've been a parent and you watch like sort of a, a child grow, um, it's like the, you know for it's the best worst thing that'll ever happen to you, right? <laughs> but like you know, watching a, a three year old compile new information, mm -hmm. try out sentences, like see what happens in response to the sensory inputs, and then like generate knowledge, it's like the most amazing thing to watch, right? Mm -hmm. And right. so having programmed a lot of computers in my life and, you know, doing my best at parenting children, which is, you know, uh, basically impossible. Um, uh, there's a fundamentally different feel to those things because one carries out your instructions faithfully and literally, no matter what, <laughs> what the result is. And the other is sort of going through this very messy process of cognition. And to me, they, they are fundamentally different. They feel fundamentally different, but to your point, G, when we start talking about these systems that are sort of very flexible in the way that their instructions work and they're compiling information and inputs and presenting new outputs to the world and then like kind of iterating on that, that definitely to my mind gets a lot closer to, uh, to cognition. Right. Which, right. And I, what, what's interesting, I think, so, um, a couple of years ago we went to an event here. So the university of Maryland at college park, we, are on their property essentially. And we use the same underlying, uh, or underlying um, ISP that they have, right? Um, and they, this ISP has to, they have to transfer huge amounts of data um, because they're connecting research environments. When I say huge amounts of data, like this is the first time I've ever heard someone talk about like large data sets. And then they started talking about the size of these data sets and how, how far they have to transfer them and how, you know, and it's like, wow, that's actually really a large data set, like petabytes and petabytes. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that was interesting that they talked about, one, he sort of like was calling for was because he was talking, the talk was mostly to scientists and researchers and how they're studying the sun and studying uh, the planets and the, you know, all these different things and, and, um, and all these algorithms that they're using to make, um, for example, like, planes that should not be able to fly that are in no way aerodynamic, but you put enough sensors on there and the, com the computer can fly this thing, despite the fact that it has no business flying. Um, 
And he was basically saying like, hey, wouldn't it be great if you all took that stuff that you're doing and applied it to the the sort of the network data that I'm generating? I'm So these giant transfers, the data data generates, generates data, essentially. It's like these giant network transfers are doing all of these things. You Like, how would I even detect that there was an intrusion with all this network stuff that's going on? How would I even know what's going on within the network? And if you were to take those, that scientific research that's being applied to astrophysics, astrophysics and such and apply it to this, wouldn't that be awesome? And I think that's where there would actually be true like AI and security. But unfortunately, most of the companies that you talk to that talk about AI and security aren't doing that. They're doing the, the a lot of if statements. Right. Um, right. And so I think that that's, I, I mean, I, I would love to get to that point. I, I thought that that was a great talk. And it was a very inspirational, reminded me of a previous conversation with Josh around, hey, there's all this, all these different prayer areas where we could be um, putting really smart people to work that are in these hard sciences um, to solve problems. And here's a problem that's actually really ripe to be solved, but there's, there's not as much interest in it. Um, for whatever yes. reason. Yeah, and just we, we, we discussed previously about the one that DARPA was running um, between in, in the Air Force and doing the... Yeah, the, the dog fights. Against, yeah. Yeah, dog yeah, fights yeah. against uh, uh, the AI pilots. Um, and we, we discussed, and I remember I saw my, my cousin was posting about it as well, and they're having a big discussion, and it was all about artificial intelligence one and you know pilot zero in regards to you know, the competitive side of things. And I've even seen the same, and it's one of the discussions we even look at uh, with Kasparov in chess about playing basically against the so-called artificial intelligence systems. And because it's such, when you look at those, there's such set rules. There's a set of rules that they have. And that's the point where when I look at it, it's not the pilot versus um, the other plane. And it's not uh, the chess master versus, you know, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the computer player. What ultimately is, is it's the pilot against an algorithm. Yep. And if you understand how the algorithm works, um, then you're actually, that you find the weaknesses, you find the flaws, just like we do in software development. You know, when you look for, you know, your penetration tester, you're looking for flaws and vulnerabilities in code so you can take advantage and exploit right. it. And it's the same with these systems um, is that you're looking for vulnerabilities and flaws. So, you know, Kasparov's playing against the, 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 the machine, really what he should have been playing against the algorithm, finding out its weaknesses and understanding. Um, and the same with the pilots is understanding about what those weaknesses in the algorithm, not looking at from equal to equal because it's not equal. And ultimately, when I get down to it, I looked at it and I made the comment and said that it wasn't uh, pilots zero, you know, artificial intelligence one. It was pilot zero, dev one. It was the right. developers who created the algorithm right. ultimately one. And that's, I think, for me, is, the, is a big difference as well that we have to get into reality. And I think, so I think there is a difference though between say chess and flying planes or other things because chess is a, it, it, all the information is known. It's a perfect, it's computers should be really good at that type of problem, right? Like I shouldn't be able to ever beat a computer at chess because all of the information is known. I mean, it's, it's 100% known. Um, flying a plane, playing other games where there's hidden information. Once we start seeing computers really beating people there consistently, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's where you're starting to get into it. But I think, Josh, can you like, I mean, we started talking about a little bit. So we talked about AI and we started talking about, well, self-learning and and, and stuff. Like maybe it'd be helpful to sort of talk about AI, machine learning. For sure. Is there a difference? Why do, you know, why are these two different, why do people 
what are they? And yeah, maybe that would be a good place to go. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you my take on it. And I think there's a lot of discussion around these things. Um, right. So, you know, full disclosure, like I did advanced degree in statistics. Um, and so I have a very strong opinion about how all of these <laughs> things sort of hang together. So take this for, 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 for what it's worth. But um, ultimately, like, you know, as we were talking about artificial intelligence, to my mind, ha, um, means uh, <laughs> cognition. Like it's like it's basically trying to create cognition in, mm-hmm. in a machine. Right. right. Um, machine learner, machine learning is more of a broader class of techniques for solving problems. And so um, this is where you're talking about things uh, where you either have an inference problem, like you're trying to classify something into one group or another. Or hot dog to, or not hot dog. Hot dog, <laughs> not hot dog. Exactly. Um, you're trying to predict uh, a value in the future given previous uh, history of things. Um, or you're trying to sort of separate data without really knowing um, sort, of, sort of the truth, but you have some glob of data and you want to pull it out in interesting ways, right? Um, I mean, a very closely related field, but certainly distinct is statistics, which is, Um, basically you have a hypothesis, a scientific hypothesis about something. You collect data and then you build a model that um, is constructed in in such a way that uh, when you put the data into it, um, the model gives you some results and that result tells you about your hypothesis. It tells you either, hey, this this data supports your hypothesis or there's just not enough evidence to say one way or the other, right? So that's sort of how I think about how all these things hang together. Um, I don't even know if that's really useful for practical purposes, but when we use these terms, that's how I think about things. Statistics is, is very scientifically based around like answering scientific questions. Machine learning is a collection of techniques for predicting, classifying, separating, and, and doing practical things with data. And AI is about cognition, so. Right, absolutely. But I do think... But I do think that machine learning is close in to my definition of AI, machine learning is actually closer to artificial intelligence in the sense that it's it's looking at previous things and using that information to sort of model, you know, modify and, and sure. you know yeah. what I mean? And, which and I think artificial intelligence is just a term that's been around for a long, long time. Right. I, I think I think there is a big there is a difference though, yes. is 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 with machine learning, it's really about it's you know, we, we use the same for you know predicting the weather. And that's one of the kind of areas you have, you know, you've got your constants and you've got your variables. And it's about playing around with those different, you know, uh, mechanisms to see how far off you are um, based on the data that you have. So, so it's really about, you know, coming up with enough data to get your probability close enough and accurate enough. Right. Uh, and based on, you know, major different variables, then you can determine if, if one changes, therefore the, the result will change. And that's really kind of get into. So it, it really, I, I absolutely, Mike. You know what you're talking about is, is you know, I think machine learning. A, AI can't have AI without machine learning. It's right. a big part of it. It's a component. It's an input. It's a factor. Um, but when you get into AI, that I think the difference is, is that if, for me, it's all about you know self-healing, self-creating. It's about when a developer wrote it that it will actually continue recreating itself as it goes forward. And when a developer comes and looks at that code again, it's not the same code it was when they wrote it at the beginning. Right. It's self-evolving, self-improving. Um, but one of the biggest challenges, and it's a, a, I think an issue that is getting um, the ethics, you know, ethical coding and uh, non, you know, non-biased coding. Um, this is really where you get into the challenge is that how do you take it out of, of, of the decisions and so forth? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, I, try, yeah. I mean, the problem is, right, there's still a human that, that 
programmed it, there's going to be biases. I mean, you look at any of these sort of AI systems, um, they have bias baked in um, because somebody had to come up with the initial set of rules. Yeah, Um, I mean, there's this great book called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction um, (laughs) that talks about this exact issue. And so you you have... Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's pretty good. Um, I mean, there's definitely like sort of an agenda behind it, but I think it's one that's argued reasonably. Um, So like... There, there are a, I have a couple, like just a couple comments about this sort of bias thing. It's really interesting. Um, one is, you know, you can collect data that just has bias in it. So depending on how you sample your data, you're going to end up with some sort of uh, bias potentially built into that, unless it's like a lab environment and, and you can do sort of cl- uh, clear A/B testing. Um, you're, you're also going to have bias based on how the model works, right? So uh, there's this like famous uh, statistician called uh, George Box who um, who said uh, all models are wrong, some are useful, right? I think I think his quote is more famous than he is. But <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, no, for sure, for sure it is. I, I like to, you know, um, so 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 like to this question of uh, statistics versus ML, I think um, it's really illuminating to how we build biases into models, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the machine learning world, when we're trying to draw an inference about something, we're, we're, for example, we're predicting whether uh, recidivism in um, inmate populations is a really good like example. To yes. Talk about, right? <laughs> um, and so if you take historical data and you plug it in blindly into um, like a classifier, some sort of um, deep learning model, right? Uh, which, you know, funny enough, this all ties together, but like uh, is a stylized version of what we, how we thought the brain worked like uh, a few decades ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you train these neurons and they'll come up ultimately with a classifier that says, yes, this, this person will uh, commit another crime or no, like they will not for making paroling decisions. It turns out these systems are so, super racist, right? Like, right. um, super, super racist. And, uh, whereas if you, you know, it's, it's harder, but if you were to use, uh, use like a statistical model where you, uh, where you, you know how the model's constructed, you know, which data you're putting into the inputs and how those parameters are coming out, you get a bit more insight into how each of the factors of a person's attributes, um, whether that's their history while they were in prison, it's their age, it's their demographic information, you can get a better sense for how these things are affecting the decision to, to, to parole or not. So, And I think it's important to explain why that system is racist. And it's racist because what you've done is you've codified all of the racism that was built, like everything that was in the original <laughs> model, like all that data was coming from what right. was a systemically racist system in the first place. So you've just right. codified it. Congratulations. Right, right. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and the problem here is like uh, essentially that the machine learning models are incredibly opaque, right? Like they're, they're built in these, I mean, they're, they're fascinating and they do incredible stuff. I mean, they can drive cars, these like convolutional neural networks and stuff. It's amazing. Like, don't get me wrong, it's amazing. But the, there's a fundamental problem of um, like introspectability. Like you can't mm-hmm. look into these models and say, Oh, this is why this algorithm is making this decision. It's you know, it's your, it's your like it's it's static, so it's not like these things are necessarily evolving over time. Um, but but they're like just very opaque. Whereas statistical models, um, at least the good ones, like you can go in and you say, oh, these parameters are affecting the outcome in this way, right? And again, I think that's supposed to be that way. 
that's also another reason why I think of machine learning being actually a little bit more like going back to your 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 talk about kids and watching them and so on and so forth, right? Uh, it, I don't think anybody would argue totally. that a kid that's raised by a racist family is probably going to be racist. Totally. And so yeah. it's that same, it's a very similar, if this is the data you're putting in, this is the, the result right. you're going to get out of it. Right. Um, yeah. Which makes it a little more, you know, obviously these two things are connected. I, statistics is definitely much better, you know, and um, I worked on an NLP uh, company and I remember talking to them and they were sort of, there were a number of uh, linguists that were very uh, pro the statistical approach and very anti-statistical approach. And um, it was always fascinating to watch those arguments uh, yeah. unfold. I think, yeah. I think we're getting to the point. It, you, yeah. your, your result is only as good as the data that you put into it. Totally. Right. And the machine do. you put it into. The machine you put it into as well. <laughs> right. and, the, and the developer that makes that machine, I think. And everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's all crap is what we're saying. I think. <laughs> At um, the end of the day, it has, it has human nature built into it. Totally. That's, that's the kind of the ultimate impact is that, um, you know, if, if we get, I, I think probably the only true thing is that eventually if you get to a point where it's completely decentralized and you no, know, the developers here creating it, and this reminds me of even some of the work I did in the past. When I was working on something, I didn't have the bigger picture. I didn't know what I was working on. I was working, I had one piece of the puzzle. I didn't know who I was working with. I just knew that this is what I had needed to create. And then that puzzle goes into something else and then is used or whatever. But if you get into that model where the person doesn't know what they're actually participating in, then you get closer to, and you get many people working that way that they don't know each other, then that gets a bit more closer to desanitizing it. You know, it's... So and I think so Joe, you, people working on the same problem, but yeah, sorry. Are, are you trying to say that decentralized AI ML <laughs> development on the blockchain is the way we're going to solve all these problems? Because if that's what you're saying, sign me up. I think, uh, I, th- I think, I think we need to make sure that there's quantum computers involved. Oh, in, right. In of, this. Course. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> with a, with that's how you do like proof of value is on the quantum computers. With a dice of quasi prime and music. Exactly. Yes. You have to play classical computer, classical music to the quantum computers. Absolutely. I think this this horse is sufficiently beaten. (laughs) We've solved all the problems, guys. Uh, That's also, by the way, I would like to point out another difference between uh, artificial intelligence and raising kids is you can beat a computer. Oh, my God. I think we'll cut the podcast off before that. (laughs) It's bringing it to a whole new level. (laughs) Well soon, well, soon you won't be able to, be able to beat the computer if it gets classified as a citizen. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it does bring up an interesting thing around artificial intelligence and at what point do they have rights um, and stuff like that. But I think so we can, actually, we can so, hold off uh, on that conversation. Yes, actually, just to kind of, <laughs> there is an interesting thing in Estonia. Actually, um, there is an algorithm in Estonia, which is called Kratz, which is interesting. I don't know why they called it Kratz is because Kratz is like a, an evil goblin who comes along and steals your things. <laughs> but that's, that's what they called it. They called it Kratz. And this is their, let's say, um, government artificial intelligence official. So if you've got a question, this bot has the ability to go off and find out all the previous types of questions similar and respond to it. So it's almost like a, it's a you know, government uh, service uh, uh, official that is there to answer questions of citizens. Um, and it really got into officially designated as uh, it, it was uh, recently as a as I guess a, a, as an e-resident citizen type of thing. Wow. So, and you also even look at the one in, in Saudi Arabia, which got classified as a citizen as well. Um, the uh, 
the robot, whatever it was. I can't remember the name of the Susie or whatever it was. Uh, but uh, but yeah, th- this gets the point is when when these devices start getting equal laws to ourselves and equal standings, um, that's a whole new direction where it can go. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Microsoft released this like Twitter bot in like 2016. It was called Tay, and within right, like right. 16 hours, it was like spouting like conspiracy theories and like these like, right. like, like what was going on these racist tirades, and they, like had to shut it off. It right. didn't even last a day. So uh, mm-hmm. I think what we're saying is people are awful, and right. Uh, <laughs> Um, what I think, I, I, I yeah. think we just need we just need to act responsibly. That's <laughs> that's we have we have responsibilities, um, and it's it's important to to stay with you know stick with the ethics side of things. Uh, that's what's critical, right? Sure. So I think to sum it up <laughs> is that, you know, eventually at some point in time, beat your computer today while you can, <laughs> because at some point in the future, you may not be able to do that. Um, but I think if we, if we go through all of the kind of the, you know, the buzzwords, bingos that we tend to play in, in, in the cybersecurity world yeah. is that some of them are reality. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them are labels more than what they really actually do. Um, some are, are, are a bit further away than others. You know, if we're talking about quantum computing, um, it is a path, it is a direction, it is reality, and, but it's, it's years out before we even get the, the benefit of it. If we get into um, looking at artificial intelligence, I think it's probably more accelerated in other industries than in the cybersecurity industry. Mm-hmm. I think if you pull back the covers in cybersecurity buzzwords, that for most companies, it really is about automation. Maybe um, they do have a large value for machine learning participating and contributing to that. Um, so, so I think you know, machine learning is a massive contribution and value um, because it really, but it really comes down to Josh, as you said, it's, it, it's as good as the data you put in and the, the model that you've actually created um, to what you're really going to get in the results. Because ultimately, um, people who created the code, um, it is biased by nature. Yep. So I think um, ultimately, you know, there is positives. Hopefully, this was valuable for the audience um, and interesting. And uh, I think the final kind of from uh, from Mike is that blockchain isn't going to solve all your problems. <laughs> and I mean, it's I'll not say this: solve all your cybersecurity problems either. Right. I'll say this. I mean, I know when I talk to cybersecurity vendors, the ones that impress me the most are the ones that say right off the bat, this isn't AI, this isn't machine learning, um, this is just statistical analysis, right? We're analyzing the data, we're automating things so that you don't have to. And they're very clear about that. And to me, when, when somebody says that, and, and I think very specifically, I don't mind naming their name, Signal Sciences, our first call, that's the way that call was. It was amazing. He was like, no, we're not going to pull your chain and, or, or your blockchain for that matter and, uh, and say like we're doing, you know, we're doing all these things. We're doing just, it's pure statistics. It's pure analysis. It's not machine, you know, it's not these things. It's not these like yeah. crazy things that like are so, buzzwords. Um, I think that's an hire. important thing when you're looking at vendors. And I think that's yeah. an important thing to, to take point, away. You're ultimately yeah. saying is they hire good developers. That's, that's ultimately truly what right. you're saying. That, and and you know, smart marketing people that aren't trying to just, tr- just trying to, trying to change yeah. the message. So, right. yeah, you know, yeah. um, you know, add the value is that what, what really companies should be selling is their, their developers who are really the ones that's really behind creating it. And rather than trying to create some kind of let's fictionist uh, message at the end of it. So Josh, Josh any, yeah, any, any final, final thoughts from you? <laughs> yeah, no, this has been awesome guys. Thanks for having me on. I think, uh, what would, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, um, 
uh, like embedded medical devices uh, <laughs> recently and cybersecurity of those things. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, Neuralink, which is one of Elon Musk's uh, companies yeah. that's like doing the, the brain machine interfaces, um, had some really interesting engineering achievements um, in making like implants on your like cranium possible. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, actual just, you know, we talked about artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. We could probably have an episode about intelligence and cybersecurity <laughs> and like how these how these devices are going to be implanted all over our bodies eventually and um, how the hell we secure those things would be, I think, yeah. a pretty interesting. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, it's the combination of both cognitive science and neuroscience together is that that's really what it's coming right. into. Right. Is when you start not um, uh, making computers better, but you start making people better with computers right. embedded. Right. The future's going to be weird. <laughs> right. But people are the worst. We're never going to make them better. Anyway. <laughs> Probably make them worse. I mean, if we're, if we're being totally honest. So. Absolutely. And again, Josh, many thanks for having you on. It's been a great discussion as yeah, always. Thanks for, and for the me. audience. Yeah, for the audience out there, I really kind of want, you know, if you've got buzzwords or things that you want us to talk about in the future, you know, feel free to throw them on um, either through social, send us a message, you know, uh, post it up. Uh, you know, if there's buzzwords that you see that you would like us to discuss, we're more than happy to bring into the, the, the conversation. So at the end of the day, you know, stay safe out there, you know, make your choices uh, wisely when you're going to look for solutions and try to actually pull back what the reality is. And don't just go off the marketing buzzwords. Uh, so again, many thanks, Josh, Mike, as always, great uh, having a chat. And uh, for the audience, stay tuned every two weeks. Uh, catch up with us on the 401 Access Denied. Stay safe, look forward to it, and take care. Thank you. See ya. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.